This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I usually wear my hat at the beginning of a Mo's talk to tell people to remind their patients to wear a hat and a sunscreen. I'm going to wear the hat this time because we have two bright lights shining on me and I can't see you otherwise, so excuse my hat. Um, thank you for inviting me, Ted. Thank you for your organization for inviting me. I love San Diego. One of my fellows this year is from San Diego. Um, it's a wonderful city. Um, I was asked to talk on DFSP, dermatofibrocytochromate protuberans, and um, Merkel cell carcinoma and other deadly tumors. So I've got two other deadly tumors. I won't tell you what the first one is because it, it's going to be in the form of a um, case uh, question. And then the second one I'm going to talk about, actinokeratosis and squamous cell carcinoma, which is my life. So I've been a Mohs surgeon for... 36 years in practice. I see about one dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans per year, so that's not many, but it's a very rare tumor. Uh, if you do get to see one, it, uh, I would be surprised. So it's a slow-growing tumor. It's 1% of soft tissue sarcomas, and probably in the United States per year, there are less than 1,000 cases in the whole of the United States with 300 million population. Typically young patients, uh, sometimes 20 to 50 years old, I've had them even younger than that and older than that, and it's the most common cutaneous sarcoma. So of the spindle cell tumors, this is the commonest uh, sarcoma. Um, if you don't know what you're doing when you cut them out, you will likely get a recurrence because they do go deep, they go into the fat, and uh, if you don't take them out in the fat, you'll probably get a recurrence. There's a very low risk of metastases. I've never seen a metastasis. And usually they're on the trunk of arms and legs where it's easy to cut out huge chunks of tissue and still get a reasonable result. And so we have uh, an easy way of removing them. I have not yet had a recurrence of uh, the, the number that I've removed. This is what they look like. Uh, they're nodular, they're multinodular, they're scarring, and they look like keloids. They're very hard, and they form these nodules like a keloid does. And sometimes they're very brown, like keloids are as well. And you can see that those aren't on the face. They're on the body and the arm and the scalp. So they're not too difficult to remove. The differential diagnosis is a scar or a hypertrophic scar or a keloid. And that's what they usually have usually been diagnosed there, especially when they're small and they don't look big like these are. And you realize that something is going on more than just a scar. So scar, morphia, morphia-form basal cell. And sometimes a vascular formation can have those changes in colors. So 90% of them are characterized by a 17-12 chromosome translocation. And that question's in my questions later. And there's a fusion of the alpha chain of the type 1 collagen gene and the platelet-derived growth factor PDGF-beta gene. So that's also in the question. And then when the two fuse, they activate the PDGF, and that drives the growth of the fibroblasts and the tumor forms. It's a spindle cell neoplasm. I'll show you pictures of that with little or no 
pleomorphism, a low mitotic rate, and you, it's, they're very characteristic in that these cells all run together like a school of fish, and they're, uh, they deeply infiltrate and they form patterns as, as the fish would form in the, uh, swimming in the water. They're CD34 positive and factor 13A negative, and that's also in the uh, test I'm going to give you in a few minutes. So here you see the spindle cells. Uh, on the left, the whole of the dermis down into the fat. You can see the uh, fat cells there. And you can see the tumors all around the fat cells and going deep. And here you see the spindle cell tumors and the herringbone patterns and the linear patterns, just like a school of fish. This is the CD34 positive staining. Again, you see these spindle cells and they're forming uh, nests and walls and, and linear patterns. A complete history to find out what happened. Usually there have been some excisions before. The tumor usually grows over a number of years, but it does grow all the time, and sometimes they can be tender. Um, review the systems, uh, look for metastases in the lung, uh, just check that there's nothing special going on with the patient. Physical exam for lymph nodes. Before surgery, we do magnetic resonance or CT imaging to see how big the tumor is. And this is after you've made a diagnosis with a biopsy, and the biopsy diagnosis is also in the exam. So the treatment is either wide local excision, as it used to be over the years until most surgery became uh, more po uh, popular as it is. When you do most surgery, it's, most surgery is basically excision and frozen section control. So we excise what we see, we look at it under frozen section. Some, some people do it with um, hematoxin and eosin and then they do it, they excise it one day and look at the slides the next day and do the next excision the next day. If you do just frozen section control, you can cut them out uh, with, within hours of each other. If you have immunostaining in your lab, I do have immunostaining, but I haven't used this particular immunostain, but the CD34 helps you very much knowing which cells are actually uh, the tumor cells and which are the normal fibroblasts that you see in the fat. So if you do most surgery, I would recommend trying to do that. And then the recurrence rate with most surgery, as I said, is very low. I've had no recurrences, and this uh, uh, reference mentions less than 1% recurrence. And then most surgery is the line of treatment of choice. Here's a classical most surgery case. It's not my case. I took it from seminars in uh, diagnostic pathology. Here's the tumor. We mark the margins as you can feel it and palpate it. He holds the tumor with um, a suture. I hold the tumor with the pickups. You cut out what you feel is the tumor. I don't use a, a blade as he's doing here when I'm cutting the tumor. I use a scissors because the scissors differentiates between the fat and the tumor and gives you a much better idea of where the tumor is. Here's the first excision. He then takes his layer, which is four, four five millimeters, and he's cutting his layer out. The layer is cut out and Apparently this was all negative, and he closed it with a uh, subcutaneous island pedicle flap. Standard type of surgery we do. If you cannot get the tumor out, or the patient doesn't want surgery, or the patient is too ill for surgery, then um, that patient is inoperable, and um, we then use a tyrosine kinase uh, receptor inhibitor, and the one we use is Gleevec or imatimib, uh, it has a vari variable response. Uh, 
usually it reduces the tumor burden but doesn't cure the patient. I don't know why that should be because if the tumors, if, if the tumor all has this particular uh, change, if you block that change, you should get a much better control. Obviously, we don't know really what's going on totally with the tumor. Um, I don't use radiation therapy after treatment. Some people do, and you would, you'd, you would use radiation therapy if there was concern for adequate surgical margins, uh, and you couldn't perhaps remove the tumor entirely. You may use radiation therapy. Um, I wouldn't use it if I had negative tumor margins. Follow up the patient every six months for three years, and then annually after that, I still have my people come in. Uh, I rem they come in and I see them year after year, and there's never been a recurrence, as I say. We're able to get them out quite clearly. Local recurrence is the most common, but remember always that they can uh, recur in the lungs. So we on to our um, question time now. Ryan, are you ready at the back? Ryan's ready to go. So the first question is, what is the preferred first-line treatment for DFSP? There are the answers. Um, do I have to click this? Yes, I do. And the answer is most surgery. You all got that right. Congratulations. Next question. How do we diagnose DFSP? And the answer is biopsy correct. Um, I usually do shave biopsies, but a good four or five millimeter punch biopsy is also very good. So this is one place I, I might recommend a punch biopsy to diagnose a tumor. Next question, what is the characteristic in-minohistochemical staining pattern in DFSB? Okay, that was a good one. No, it's the D is correct. I didn't stress enough the, uh, the answer that CD34 was positive. I showed you the slide, so you should have got that from that one. But just remember, it's CD34 positive and chapter 13A negative. Next question, what is the characteristic mutation in DFSP? So the Philadelphia chromosome is for leukemia. The loss of the P53 gene is seen in epidermal tumors, and the B600E BRAF mutation is seen in melanoma. So the answer is the correct one, uh, number two, which you all got. Congratulations. What is the characteristic risk associated with a typical DFSP? What happens to the tumor over a period of time? And you all got that one right. Congratulations. Uh, six, what medication can we use to treat inoperable DFSP?
Correct. You're all in line to get your CME credits for this lecture. Congratulations. Uh, what clinical entities can uh, DFSP mimic? And we got that one right. As usually in these particular quizzes, it's always all of the above. Any questions? Uh, we'll leave questions to later. I'm just going to talk to you about Merkel cell carcinoma now. Uh, Merkel cell carcinoma is also fairly rare, but not as rare as the DFSP. Uh, it's a malignant neuroendocrine tumor. It occurs in elderly people, usually women, but also in men. And I think there are more cases than, than the DFSP, so I would say that there are probably more than a thousand cases in the United States per year. I probably put that at four or five times the number of DFSP. And very interestingly, we found that there's a polyomavirus associated with this tumor. Um, this would be wonderful if the polyomavirus caused the tumor and we could stop the polyomavirus from causing the tumor. Unfortunately, I think it's just associated with the tumor and not causing it, but we haven't worked out the exact uh, relationship between the two. Um, there may still be an, a, a possibility in the future to treat the polyomavirus, but at the moment we can't do that and cure the tumor. If they're usually excised and they have a high rate of local recurrence, 50%, because they're widespread tumors and they're not well-defined like the DFSP, they're much more uh, subclinical. There's a high rate of metastasis up to 27%, and that's in your test later on, so try and remember that number, with lymph node metastases at the time of presentation. This is what they look like. Um, usually a red nodule like this that's very red to almost purple. And here's another one on the cheek. And sometimes they're multiple, and by that time stage, they're, it's almost terminal uh, tumor, but they can be multiple. They favor the head and neck, and they're pink or purple, dome-shaped, and they're firm uh, nodules, and they may ulcerate. And they mimic an abscess, basal cell, squamous cell, adnexal tumor, amelanotic melanoma, pyogenic granuloma, and lymphoma. I rarely ever diagnose them myself without the biopsy. So if you get a tumor that's nonspecific, that doesn't look quite like a basal or a squamous, always biopsy before you do anything because you may get a surprise for what it may be. And your surprise may be in any of these particular categories. The tumor is widely infiltrating, involving the dermis, the deep tissue, the sheets of monotonous under the microscope, blue round to oval cells, sometimes with salt and pepper nuclei, they're prominent mitoses, and they're CK20 positive and S100 negative. Here's a typical histological case. This is H and E. You see the tumor cells here, they're widespread all through the dermis, the subdermis, the uh, sub-epidermal uh, sub uh, uh, corneal and uh, epidermal layer. And then here are the cells with the salt and pepper um, features, and there's a mitotic figure. CD, CK20 pacing is positive. Again, the workup is a complete history to find out if there are other diseases involved, to find out if any of the uh, if the history has changed in the patient, if there are any serious systemic symptoms, 
we review the symptoms, we do a physical exam, especially of the lymph nodes, also a chest x-ray and other general uh, examinations, and of course we do the biopsy. Um, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but just to tell you that the treatment varies by, by whether they're nodes palpable or non-nodes palpable. If they're nodes palpable, I usually send the patient directly to an oncologist and uh, have the oncologist follow the patient with lymph node biopsies and um, general workup radiation therapy. If the nodes are not palpable, then I'll try and excise that tumor, especially if the tumor is small. Uh, if necessary, and I think that the tumor is more widespread, I'll send the patient for sentinel lymph node biopsy. If that biopsy is positive, again, goes to see the oncologist, and the oncologist follows the patient. If the, pa if the, le is, the lesion is small and it looks like I've got it all out on most surgery, I will stay with the patient and watch the patient. If the lesion is bigger, I'll send the patient for lymph node biopsy. These patients um, have usually been said to have about a 50% mortality rate, um, and so I try to get them to the oncologist as soon as possible. Wide local excision, most surgery is, is preferable just to wide uh, local excision. This has a 30 to 50 percent recurrence rate. Uh, most surgery also has a recurrence rate, but it's, it's much less. And then uh, lately we've been sending our patients for the sentinel lymph node biopsy. Medical treatment, um, I, I don't want to go into this because I don't do it myself. Uh, there's an anti-PDL1 immunoglobulin that blocks the negative inhibition of T cells to attack the tumor. It was just approved recently. Um, the overall response rate apparently is 33%. That's much better than otherwise, and a complete response rate of 11%. Uh, radiation is widely used as adjuvant therapy. Uh, I, until the sentinel lymph node biopsies, I used to send my patients with larger tumors just for radiation to the lymph nodes. I now just send them for sentinel lymph node biopsy. And it's re recommended for tumors larger in size. Prognosis is not good, as I mentioned. Uh, survival rate at five years, 66% for small lesions, 51% for larger lesions, and once you have regional lymph node disease, the survival rate drops, and especially for metastatic disease. Uh, see the patient's history and physical every six months, uh, and then every three months, Every, sorry, every month for six months, and then every three months for two years, and after that, just every six months thereafter. And it's amazing, I'm still seeing some of my early patients uh, who I've treated and have not recurred. Um, there's a circulating tumor assay. I have not used that, and local occurrences usually occur early, and metastases early as well. And then the, the disease metastasizes to the systemic organs, and that's a bad sign. So here are the questions. Are we ready for questions? We got that one right, correct, well done. What virus is associated with um, microcystic Carcinoma, with Merkel cell carcinoma. Ah, oh, there we go. 
Yes, we got that one right, correct? Very good. What percentage of patients with MCC are likely to have lymph node involvement at the time of presentation? Well done. You're very attentive and uh, you remember well. Congratulations. What is the primary form of treatment for MCC? Local cell. Excellent. Thank you. When is radiotherapy not indicated for Merkel cell. Yes, when the lesions are very small and the lesion can be excised completely. Congratulations there. What type of cell is the Merkel cell derived from? Congratulations again. It's the neuroendocrine system. Um, I'm going to go on and talk about a subungual tumor that I saw about three weeks ago. And it's a good lesson for us as dermatologists in how we should handle a patient. The patient was a 67-year-old uh, woman who had dystrophy for the past four years on her left ring finger. A nail clipping in the past had been positive for PAS and she was thought to have a fungal infection and so she was given a course of oral tobenafin and the nail didn't improve and so she had a, a therapeutic nail in, uh, avulsion and at that stage, the area became very tender and she was sent to another dermatologist and eventually arrived in my office. And you can see she uh, comes from a well-to-do family. She has <laughs> a big diamond ring and she has this tumor growing out of the nail. Um, there she is again when she came to see me. Uh, we took a little bit of the nail off and you can see she has a reddish tumor that's raised, it's friable. Uh, my one fellow thought it was pyoderma gangrenosum. In fact, the referring doctor also thought that. And uh, the question was, they wanted me to whether, whether I should evulse the nail and remove the nail base or how should I treat that? And I looked at that and I said, I really don't know what that is. That's an uh, non-pigmented lesion. It could be any of the tumors we discussed earlier on. Um, and I didn't know at the time, but at some stage in the development of this disease, she'd had pigment around this uh, tumor. I didn't know whether the pigment was heme or whether it was something else, but there was no pigment at this time. So we did the biopsy from this uh, one centimeter exophytic red friable plaque. There'd been no epitrochlea or axillary lymph nodes. And we did the biopsy. We did a frozen section in the office. Again, the 
differential diagnosis of that type of thing is the same all over for glomus tumor, warts, squamous cell carcinoma, pyogenic granuloma, melanoma, and poroma. This is what it looked like under the microscope, and immediately I saw we, had, we were having a problem here because there were big cells, there were small cells, the tumor was invading the whole full thickness of the dermis of the area of the nail bed. Uh, under higher power, you can see these huge cells, big cells and small cells. The differential at this stage for me was either a squamous cell carcinoma, there was a little keratin pearl there, or perhaps a malignant melanoma. Cells go all the way to the base. Some of them are surrounded by clear cytoplasm. And we sent the tumor off as well to the pathologist, and it came back that this was a melanoma, uh, level 4, 1.9 millimeter in thickness, and um, there was no evidence of any spread of the tumor. And so we th I thought that I would remove the tumor and see if I could get clear margins and then uh, perhaps save the finger for... Um, for her for later. So we did plan to do most surgery with MART1 stain. We were going to do genetic profiling by the Castle method. We were going to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy if necessary, and we considered imaging and possible amputation. I brought her into the office, so you can see I use local anesthetic, the fingers pale, um, and we removed the whole tumor down to the bone. And looking at it under the microscope with the mart stain, there was a small area of melanoma at the tip here. It was superficial. I removed that, and uh, the tumor was completely excised. Except for the fact that when you, we looked at the tissue very carefully, you could see that there's a small group of uh, melanocytes in the dermis. These melanocytes are away from the main bulk of the tissue. If you look at it under the greater power, you can see they're melanocytes and uh, they're forming a little nodule, and so this is microsatellitosis. And this particular finding, there were four or five little uh, nodules like this, or little groups of cells. This changes the disease from a non-metastatic to a metastatic disease. And for me, that is the big change that occurs in melanoma, because once you have metastatic disease locally, you may have this in the lymph nodes, you may have this systemically, and this changes the disease and the prognosis of the disease. This was the final stage of the Mohs surgery. We put a split thickness skin graft on that. I saw that skin graft three or four days ago. It's healed, it looks well, and she has a functional finger. So, um, just to let you know, if you have a, an amelanotic nodule, this can still be an amelanotic melanoma. It's the dermatologist's nightmare to have an amelanotic melanoma. We do see them. If you see something that you don't know, don't hesitate. Always biopsy before you do anything. Uh, the patient was given the opportunity in Houston to go and see MD Anderson um, doctors or go and just see an oncologist. Uh, my choice was rather to have a see an oncologist because we're having good luck with our new methods of treatment for melanoma. And if she goes to MD Anderson, she's going to lose the finger. She's going to lose all her lymph nodes in her axilla. Uh, I think she's going to go and see the MD Anderson people, and she doesn't mind losing her finger. Some people would mind losing the finger, and so they need to have a choice about that. I want to show you a patient with a microcystic adnexal carcinoma that was huge that we treated that was really difficult to treat, but we overcome, overcame the challenges. So here we go. 
Um, this is a 67, 68-year-old man, and he comes with this ulceration here. He's had a previous squamous cells on the top of his head. He's been treated by me over the years for huge tumors of his scalp. And this is the first one that's uh, microcystic adnexal carcinoma. Uh, I biopsied that. It came back microcystic adnexal carcinoma. I took a nice, big, wide excision. You can see the fibrosis and the scarring there. We looked at it under the microscope, and all the margins were positive for that tumor. We had to take it down to the bone. We were still positive. We kept going. This is stage 10. We were still positive on stage 10. And round about stage 12 or 13, we finally had negative margins on this tumor. He'd been bleeding around here, and that's why you see the scarring from the, um, on the tissue. So he's negative at this stage. Um, we have a choice of taking a uh, graft from the plastic surgeon, taking the graft which, with the blood supply and putting it in there. We offered that to him. He did not want that. He wanted to let that heal on its own. And so we let it heal on its own. After a while, it didn't heal well. You can see the small amounts of granulation tissue. And so I have a technique now. I take the 15 blade and I rub it around like making fire, the Indian method of making fire. And I can make holes in the bone. And when you make holes in the bone, it, it regenerates. You can see the little holes I'm making over here. You can't go through to the inner, inner cortex, so it's a pretty safe technique to do. We've done it on a number of patients. And when you do that, you can see the granulation tissue comes out through the bone. We did more holes over time. The granulation continued to grow. Here he is a little while back. He developed another squamous cell on the anterior margin here, so I had to remove that as well. And he's looking well. He's, uh, he had some pain uh, before, but the pain's gone away. He's very optimistic, and we're optimistic. This is crusting from the previous excision that he'd had. Uh, and so that was just the type of work that we do and the difficulties we get with these huge tumors as they occur. I'm going to talk to you briefly now about actinic keratosis field cancerization and invasive squamous cell carcinoma. Rajiv also touched on the subject, so I'm not going to give my whole talk because um, Rajiv did the treatment part of this very well and um, show you my ideas about actinic keratosis and how that gets to squamous cell carcinoma. So this is the list of the sun-induced skin tumors that we have, lentigenes, macular seborrheic keratosis, uh, actinic keratosis, invasive squamous cells, some of the keratoacanthomas, basal cells, and some of the melanomas. Sorry. Um, I want to just make one point. Nearly all scalp tumors occur in bald men. Not women, not men with hair, but bald men. And they usually start occurring five years after the onset of baldness. And so it's quite clear to us that all the tumors that I'm going to show you are sun-induced tumors because um, uh, they fall into this characteristic of tumors that occur on the scalp in bald men. And uh, that's why I wear the hat. That's why all your patients should be wearing hats when they're out in the sun and wearing sunscreens. So this is the earliest change of the scalp in the, in the bald man. They start getting uh, hyperkeratotic macules, lentigenes. They get actinic keratosis. Here's one. Here's probably another one. They start getting frozen by the dermatologists, and then they start developing scarring from that point. 
If you look carefully at each particular macular actinic keratosis, here is one over here. It's a little bit more rough over here. It's red over here as well, and there's no uh, keratin or abnormal keratosis. But it's clear that here there's change in the keratin forming production here. There's no change. When sometimes I get my patients and they have multiple actinic keratoses, and it's obvious that the keratosis has spread. If you look carefully, there's scarring where it's been frozen and there's redness around the edges. So this, in my opinion, is all one big lesion. And then you look down here, 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 and the tumor has spread over the, the left cheek. So Ackerman's philosophy that is, was that actinic keratosis is an early squamous cell carcinoma. It's within the squamous cell carcinoma spectrum. And when you accept that philosophy that actinic keratosis isn't just a lesion, it's actually a tumor, and it's a malignant tumor, it occurs in the epidermis, and so that's good because it's in situ, but it still is a squamous cell carcinoma with the possibility of growing larger. Is it pre-malignant? Uh, Theoretically, it is pre-malignant, but practically it's malignant already. It's just an insight to malignancy. I think the term pre-malignancies was, was developed because we didn't want to scare our patients into worrying about these lesions. But in fact, we should scare our patients. We should tell them to stop going in the sun. They should wear sunscreens, and they should protect themselves. So it's a tumor of the epidermis, and it's rather a two-dimensional tumor rather than a three-dimensional tumor in that it spreads along the epidermis. It spreads laterally rather than vertically. And again, to repeat myself, an actinic keratosis is a squamous cell carcinoma in situ. Um, they spread, and sometimes we don't see them spreading. Um, when they're larger lesions, we know they're already spreading. When they're numerous, we know they're already spreading. And then when they involve a whole cosmetic unit, we know that we have field cancerization. So field cancerization is an squamous cell carcinoma that's spread over a cosmetic unit, one cosmetic unit at least. Here's a patient who had an actinic keratosis, and we treated him with, with effudex, and you can see that his whole face is lighting up, and the effudex finds the subclinical lesions, and it shows you how that these actinic keratoses are subclinical. So even though you just see one lesion, around their other lesions as well. So you, don't, you should suspect that they're there, you should know that they're there. Um, the subclinical lesions are prevalent, they may be deep, they may be periadnexal, they heal with fibrosis from scarring, they skip areas because you don't see them uh, as this one large lesion, sometimes they, they seem to skip areas. They're resistant to treatment because they go deep, they go periadnexally down the sweat ducts and down the hair follicles and they can result, and they do result eventually in an invasive squamous cell. They particularly result in squamous cells in older people, in people who've had uh, transplants and are on immunosuppression, and in other patients who have immunosuppressive type of diseases. Rajiv did a wonderful coverage of that. Thank you, Rajiv. Here's a patient of mine that I saw 20, 25 years ago. He died about a year ago. And when I saw him, he had these numerous actinic keratoses. And you, you have to realize that this is field cancerization. Not only are the 
marked areas, uh, squamous cell carcinoma in situ, but all the other areas are also squamous cell carcinoma in situ. So you have to realize that this is an uh, inoperable disease. This has spread so far that all I'm going to be able to do with this man is um, treat the superficial, and if he gets invasive lesions, treat the invasive lesions. What eventually happened with him uh, was that he developed a squamous cell carcinoma of the scalp. Uh, his wife had died. He became depressed. He did not want to have that treated, and he left it. Uh, I saw him a couple of times. He didn't want treatment, and the, it invaded his skull bone, and it eventually killed him. So this disease does kill. It's not a benign condition that we just look at and say, oh, it's benign. When the lesions spread further, we get a disseminated form of the uh, squamous cell carcinoma. Here's a patient of mine who was from Corpus Christi. He used to come and see me every month. And he, by the time I'd got him, he had actinic keratosis, squamous cell carcinoma inside over the whole face. There was very little I could do for him except treat him topically with the topical medications that we have. And when he developed uh, invasive lesions, I treated the invasive lesions. Similar patient on the left-hand side. Um, that's when I coined the term a proliferative actinic keratosis, which was an actinic keratosis that grew in size. In fact, it was named wrongly. It should have been squamous cell carcinoma because they all are squamous cell carcinomas. So you see they, here's a proliferative actinic keratosis, and in the middle it's red, it's rougher, and the central part has become an invasive squamous cell carcinoma. This one also is squamous cell all around, and in the center it's become invasive. Here's one with an invasive nodular tumor, and there's actinic keratosis all around, and here's just one with a widespread uh, squamous cell carcinoma in situ. So it's a serious disease. How do we know when an AK has become invasive? How do we know when it's gone beyond superficial? When it grows in size, when it's beyond one centimeter or 1.5 centimeters? When it becomes nodular, when it ulcerates, when it bleeds, and very good sign is if the patient says to you, this one is painful, what do I do about it? Know that that one has invaded. And cutaneous horns, more than 50% of them are invasive squamous cell carcinoma. Um, superficial squamous cell carcinoma in situ, SCC in situ, has a number of types. There's the Bowen's disease, which we know. There's the proliferative actinic keratosis, which I showed you. And there's squamous cell carcinoma in, in situ. And uh, I want to show you ex examples. This is the proliferative actinic keratosis. It grows underneath the epidermis, and it grows down the hair follicle. See these cells growing down the hair follicles? When it, they grow down the hair follicles to the level of the sebaceous glands, it's clear to us that none of the topical medications are going to work anymore, neither 5-FU, imiquimod, PDT, or any of the others. And these are best treated by, uh, I do most surgery but, surgery, but any type of excision. Here's another one, a proliferative actinic keratosis. There's acantholysis. See, there's a hair follicle. See, the cells have grown down the hair follicle. Here's another hair follicle, and the cells have grown around that one. And here in the middle, some of the cells have become, uh, frankly, invasive, showing that this is a dangerous tumor. It should be treated with respect and uh, with aggressiveness. Here's another one with hair follicles and the tumor growing around. This is the difference between the Bowen's disease, which stays in the epidermis and is full thickness of the epidermis, and the proliferative actinic keratosis, which is at the lower border of the epidermis. The epidermis itself and the keratinization 
uh, is normal, and so you don't necessarily get uh, keratin or a thickened keratin layer, whereas with the Bowen's disease, you get the thickened keratin layer. Here's a, a cartoon of that showing cells at the base, cells full thickness. So what is the clinical significance of actinic keratosis? The, these patients uh, are developing sun-induced skin cancers. They need to be told they're cancers. If they're on the golf course, if they're on the tennis court, if they're in the garden, if they're fishing, they need to change their habits. Otherwise, the disease is going to be progressive. The tumors may be in situ, but they are cancer. And the in situ tumors are treatable by physical and topical chemical methods and PDT. Um, and whenever they, I see a patient with actinic keratosis, I always recommend that they do chemical prevention, chemo prevention. And chemo prevention can be any of the medications we normally use, the Effudex, the Imiquimod, the, um, and, and the others, uh, Inginol, Mebutate, and also the PDT. I love PDT. I do it in my office all the time. The patients get used to it. They come in at least once a year or once every six months, and they get their subclinical tumors treated. Invasive AKs are resistant to these treatments and require surgical removal or deep destructive methods. Um, this is the list of the treatments. I'll just leave this up for a few seconds, and uh, 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 Rajiv went through this very well. I don't want to necessarily go through it myself anymore. He talked about Soriatin, uh, Zaloda, uh, Mose, all these other treatments. And of course, combinations and uh, rotation therapy. Use one method, stop after a month, use another method. Anything you can do that can get, you can get the patient to put on um, Effudex uh, or Imiquimod and keep treating the, treat, the, the lesions as much as possible. In summary, I told you that squamous cell carcinoma is a spectrum of sun-exposed tumors. They begin with actinic keratosis, which enlarge, they multiply, they thicken, they become invasive, and the invasive tumors may metastasize, invade nerves and deeper tissues, including the fat, the muscle, and the bone. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, everybody here for being here. Thank you for listening to me, and I hope you're inspired as I am to treat these, species, these uh, tumors, treat the patients, and keep them healthy. Thank you. The overall performance of the speaker. <laughs> Should I hide away for this one? How useful will this session be in your practice? Your practice and also when you're walking around and you're meeting your friends and you see they've developed lesions on their face and you think these lesions are squamous cells, tell them, go and get that lesion looked at, go and get it treated. Get into it, get, get passionate like I am. Uh, first question, I have a patient with a superficial melanoma at 21, a DFSP at 26, and it's been over 10 years. Yes, you have very specific concerns with this patient. He develops cancers similar to the patient that I showed you with the uh, 
microcystic and nexal carcinoma of the scalp. He's also had a melanoma on his scalp, and he's also had uh, numerous squamous cell carcinomas and basal cell carcinomas. It's very unusual to see this, but I do see it. It's, uh, I, I can't explain it. Just see that patient as often as possible. Give that patient your phone number. Let him call you if ever he needs anything and, and become his friend. Uh, he'll, he'll come to you for treatment. What is the uh, polyomavirus? Polyomavirus. It's a virus that's been found in these tumors. Um, what is it? I don't know. Does Ted, can you answer the question? Doesn't know. I don't know either. It's, it's a virus. <laughs> if I do a large removal by a mose, doesn't that make the sentinel lymph node less likely to be the correct node removal? Um, not necessarily. Um, the, the surgeons say this, and the, this was their, re, their reasoning to try uh, and, and get us to not operate on the, the early melanomas, but I like to get the melanomas out as soon as possible. I, very rarely does a patient leave my office with a newly diagnosed melanoma still present. I usually just take it off, whatever I do, because at some stage, at some minute, at some second, there are going to be those cells that have left that tumor and have now made metastatic disease. So I don't wait. I just get them out um, as soon as I can. Uh, I don't think it changes sentinel lymph node all that much. Um, that's just I don't know that there's been a study to show that it does or it doesn't change it. Does your scalp drilling technique require anesthesia? No, it does not require anesthesia. The scalp is absolutely numb. You can do it as much as you like. The only thing the patients don't like is the scraping noise of the blade on the bone. But it's very, it's very easy, very atraumatic. What, um, what do you do with patients who has a biopsy-proven uh, actinic keratosis already treated with, in, is that Inginol 2, but refuses Epidex? Oh, liquid nitrogen, okay. Um, you have to go with the topical, uh, one of the topical medi medications. Um, I like Epidex, it's, it's relatively cheap and you can get it for a reasonable price. What I suggest to the patients is that they treat themselves three times a week at bedtime. Just put it on at bedtime three times a week, and that usually doesn't cause a severe reaction, which is what the patients don't want. And then if you, once you're doing it three times a week, you can go up three, four, five, six, seven times a week, whatever is best, and keep following the patients. They need their hands held because they do get a reaction and they need to be seen whenever they need to be seen. Um, so try and get the patient onto a, um, a topical medication. I, I also have, as I said, uh, photodynamic therapy in my office, which is some patients love that because you treat them once and then they go out and it's done. Or you can do photodynamic theory, therapy where you put on the medication, uh, leave it on for an hour, take the medication off, and then they can wander around the rest of the day, and that's enough, sunlight, that's enough light or mild sunlight that it, it will treat the patient. And that's... That's being done in Europe at the moment, the uh, sunlight PDT. Any tips for treating persistent AKs on the vermilion board of the upper lip? That's a real problem um, because they do cause squamous cells with invasion. Um, I, I freeze them, actually. The way I freeze them is I put local anesthetic in. 
I use, I, I do a lot of local anesthetic for all my freezing. And once you've put the local anesthetic in and the patient doesn't feel it, you can freeze much harder and much deeper and get a much better result. Any systemic effects with 5-FU wraps? I don't do the wraps. Um, I don't have the particular patient population that Rajiv has with the huge numbers on the arms and the legs, especially on the legs. So I haven't found it necessary to, to use wraps. I think that the main side effect of the wraps is the ulceration and the redness on the legs from the lectures that I've attended. What is the rate of transformation from AK to invasive squamous cell? Um, it varies by the age of the patient, by whether they're going in the sun. And remember, sun itself is uh, immunosuppressive. Uh, and the, as they age, they get more and more diseases. And um, that's what makes the squamous cells become invasive. Is hypertrophic actinic keratosis actually squamous cell carcinoma? Yes, they are squamous cell carcinomas. Do the biopsies, send them to the pathologist, speak to your pathologist and uh, explain to them what you're looking for. And um, don't just take a pathology report that reads actinic keratosis. You want to know whether that lesion is benign or malignant because that's the, what affects your treatment the benign or malignant diagnosis. Say to the pathologist, please tell me, is this benign or malignant? Is EDNC adequate for proliferating actinic keratosis? Um, use whatever you can. Uh, EDC for the superficial lesions is sufficient, yes. If it's deep, it depends on how sharp your curette is. Some of our new uh, disposable curettes are extremely sharp. That blade is like a, a regular 15 blade, and you can curette almost as deep as you want to, right through the dermis if you want. So it depends, again, on the technique you're using. Uh, does Merkel cell carcinoma have a genetic component? Approximate percentage of family member will get Merkel cell. I don't know of a genetic component for Merkel cell carcinoma. I've never had one in two family members. I've never heard of it. I've never seen a case report of that. Uh, everything that we do, we ourselves are genetic, so you can say there's no genetic component, but I haven't seen cases of, of it in the family. All right, thank you. Are we going to do some more? Have we got time for some more? It's 10.18. What percentage of Bowen's disease advances beyond in situ? Bowen's disease uh, advances less often than the proliferative actinic keratosis. It does advance laterally, and it, they do go down the hair follicles, but they don't seem to break through the basement membrane and cause infiltrative disease very often. I do see it, but not as often as the other disease. Uh, do I treat all actinic keratosis? Definitely. I, and if I don't do it, I have the patients get the 5-FU tube and go home and start treating on their own. Make that serious. What are my views on Aerovege? Aerovege treats basal cell carcinomas only, not squamous cell carcinomas. There was an article or two recently that if you treat a patient with basal cells with Aerovege, that you bring out squamous cell carcinomas. I don't think that's correct. I think what's happening is that you're treating the basal cells and suddenly the patient is seeing the squamous cells and becoming more aware of the squamous cells. I don't think Aerovege causes squamous cell carcinomas. I was at a conference where the following treatment was recommended for persistent actinic keratosis, emiquimod, then used once. Have you ever tried this thoughts? 
Um, I've used Iqmikwamon in all sorts of ways as, much, as, as, as I can. I've used, I use it for many, many patients, and I try and get the patient to put on as much as I can, uh, get the patient to comply with. So I'll start with less numbers of times to use Imiquimod or 5-EFU, and then increase that with time. See the patients, get their confidence, get them to want the treatment, and then they'll do the treatment. So the big problem here is the patient compliance. How do I handle patients with basal cell nevus syndrome? They almost all get Aerovig. It's a miracle drug. It's a genius drug for a disease that's needed treatment for many years. Um, I have patients now on it for seven, eight years. Uh, the big problem is once they've been on it for a long period of time and all the, the tumors go away, they want to stop the, tr the, uh, the drug altogether. So the latest idea is to give them uh, breaks, treat for two, three months, and take them off for a month, and that help helps hold them on the medication. Once they go off the medication, it's just a matter of time before new tumors start forming, and then they have to go back on the medication, and it's very hard for, to get the insurance companies to start paying for it again, because it is very expensive, and so that's a problem. Try and keep the patients on their, on their Aerovig. Do you limit the amount of treatments per year for Epidex? Any safety concerns? I don't limit the number of treatments uh, with Epidex. I don't know that there are any safety problems. I haven't had any that I know about. If you have any and you want to tell me, I'd love to listen to you and uh, I'll think about it and, and give you a, a better idea. Can you really freeze deeper if the goal of liquid nitrogen is to separate the dermis and epidermis? If you put liquid, if you put local anesthetic in that area that the patient's not having severe pain, and I put a lot of local anesthetic in, you can freeze really deeply with liquid nitrogen. Just hold it down and open up the tube can and let it spray them. <laughs> John Wolfe used to laugh at me at Baylor College of Medicine that I was the one who used the most liquid nitrogen. Our pathologists tend to report AK unable to rule out squamous cell, and usually we are doing a three millimeter punch to rule out squamous cell and then treat with liquid nitrogen. What are your thoughts? Um, if he says he's unable to rule out squamous cell, then you have to get aggressive and probably use the liquid nitrogen or whatever you're using as an aggressive treatment. Um, I try not to use a three millimeter punch for my tumors because once you do that, it's very difficult to find the uh, margins when you're doing frozen section control. So I stay away from the punch biopsy, but um, I, I use the shave biopsies and I've been using the flexible blade, the razor blade or the derma blade, and you can take nice deep wide shades and you can give your pathologist lots of tissue that will heal on, because you don't take it deep and that gives the pathologist a better idea of knowing what he's dealing with, and he may give you fewer reports that say, unable to rule out squamous cell, if you can see more tissue, because he's protecting himself as well. Do immunosuppressed patients respond well to Aldera? I don't know the answer to that question, because um, you, you're expecting to get the redness from the Aldera, and so if you're immunosuppressed, then you don't get the redness. I don't know the answer to that question. If you see Rajiv, ask him a little while. He, he deals much more with those patients. Is Rajiv in the audience? Uh, that's right. He told me he was taking his kids around. If you, when you see him again, just ask him that question. Sorry I can't answer that. Thank you. You've been a great audience. This has been a production of Dermcast TV brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting 
in San Diego, California.